0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: We've been fighting this same fight for more than 30 years. Well, I got into it just over 30 years ago, and I'm sure it went on before that. But that, of course, has to do with the Bernardo story. And the fact that this uh, serial monster was essentially released from a maximum security prison, Millhaven in Ontario, to the La Macaza, medium security institution in Quebec. It's a step down. How many of you know, how many of you have been listening to this program long enough to know that we revealed, much to the discomfort and distress of Correctional Service Canada, during an interview, when I obtained the handbook for prison inmates, oops, offenders. And uh, in the preamble, the offenders are described as clients. Got that? So when you're, <laughs> I don't know what they've done with it since, this probably got a brand new term, it's even more friendly. People kind. Um, So when you're incarcerated in a prison and the doors clang shut behind you, I've been in about seven or eight prisons. Um, Two doing my program there with the inmates committee. And several others when I was in an advisory committee for the public safety minister at the time. They really clang. Some of them do. Some of them just hiss shut. But there's no mistaking where you are. So somebody came up with the idea that we we can't call them prisoners. Can't really write offenders anymore, so we'll call them clients. Did you know that, Mr. Trudeau, or did somebody keep that from you? How about you, Mr. Mendicino? Did you know that that was in the CSC handbook for offenders who are brought to prison, called clients, named clients. I don't think they've changed that. Okay, Tim Danson is the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families who want Bernardo returned to that maximum security prison in in Ontario, Millhaven. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Do you believe Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Mendicino when they say they weren't informed by the staff about the transfer of Bernardo from maximum to medium security?
2: Well, I was just saying that, you know, I'm finding it very frustrated. Uh, It's almost like broken telephone. Uh, I don't know what the truth is. Uh, It seems to me that uh, when there's a decision of this magnitude, uh, at the very least, that the Commissioner of Corrections would call the minister directly, and in the alternative, and I would say a distant alternative, send an email directly to the minister. You know, the fact that you're leaving this with the minister's staff, uh, and it goes that many months without... It being communicated to the minister, I don't know if, if this is plausible deniability, um, and speaking with the families, you know, enough is enough. I mean, there seems to be unanimity from the prime minister to the minister, leader of the opposition, uh, and it seems like 40 million Canadians, that this was a shocking decision, an incomprehensible decision. Talk is cheap at this point. If everybody believes that, if all the politicians believe it, do something about it. Rescind uh, the transfer order and transferred Paul Bernardo back to Millhaven, maximum security. And then we can maybe have a discussion about how all this happens and what the criteria is. But right now, uh, the fact that he is in uh, medium uh, security uh, is, is something that I find fundamentally repugnant given what this person did uh, to these poor uh, uh, girls. Yeah.
0: Does, does Bernardo, and you've seen him up close during uh, parole hearings, does Bernardo enjoy the public attention?
2: Oh, I, not only does he enjoy the public attention, the, the the fact that he videotaped these unspeakable crimes uh, against Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, he, let, let's understand this. He did this for his own personal entertainment. Um, this is a person who all the top medical experts has, has, has found to be a sadistic, sexual psychopath. And he's been designated as a dangerous offender. And as two years ago uh, at the at his 2021 parole hearing, the parole board found, based on the evidence, no remorse, no empathy, no insight, not treatable. I mean, he's the worst of the worst, and he must face the harshest penalty known to law uh, for his unspeakable, sexually sadistic and brutally violent crimes. Period. End of story. This Kind of template justice where they put all prisoners in the same category is simply absolutely unacceptable. You cannot treat uh, a sadistic sexual psychopath the same way that you would do someone who did a break and enter. Uh, you know, there's got to be some sense of reality to this and it's got to stop.
0: Yeah. I was just thinking about 35 years ago. or So you and I sat in this very studio. I'm in now with Jim Stevenson, whose son Christopher had been abducted and sexually assaulted and Murdered by one Joseph Fredericks, who was uh, described by a judge as a sadistic, um, a masochistic uh, pedophile, who enjoyed torturing his victims more than he enjoyed killing them. And yet they, said, they set them loose. They set them loose, and you found out during the inquiry that Correctional Service Canada's um, supervisory person for Fredericks didn't know what a sociopath was. This, the holes in this, in this, in this case, and these cases are extremely disturbing. You were at the uh, parole hearing for uh, for, uh, Bernardo last time. Um, What's his attitude in there?
2: Well, you know, it's it's an interesting question, Roy, because um, you know, one of the things that I've been asking for, uh, and we do have a case before the Federal Court of Appeal that I argued in February, we're still waiting for a decision. I want the audio tape of his two parole hearings, and in particular, the last one, to be released to the public so the public can hear for themselves. I mean, these are public hearings. Let's understand that these parole hearings are public hearings. There's no reason why the public doesn't have a right to the evidence uh, and listen to Paul Bernardo himself, because what they will hear uh, is shocking and and chilling. He talks about his crimes, uh, his offenses against these girls, as normal people would talk about the weather. Uh, This person is in an entirely different category than any, any other offender in the system. So when I start hearing this nonsense argument about a slippery slope of the minister and the government intervenes and rescinds this order or directs the commissioner, we're talking about one-half of 1% of the prison population. We're not talking about 99.5% uh, or more, 99% of the pr- prison population. So, um, you know, it's almost as if they, they don't, you know, they, they play lip service to the gravity of his offence. But for those of us who, have, who unfortunately had to review and listen to these videotapes, uh, these crimes are so beyond unspeakable uh, that to treat him uh, in a way that he should have extra privileges when he didn't give anything, he, he didn't give a damn about the privacy rights of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Um, you know, it, it's pretty startling. And, and the other thing that's really concerning me here, now that we know that, uh, and I found this to be shocking that the corrections, even though they didn't do it the right way, uh, informed the government uh, uh, in on March second, and they waited effectively to June uh, to enforce their decision, so that it actually corresponds with the abduction uh, and the um, and the murder of Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie Mahaffey was abducted on 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 June fifteenth in the early hours, and 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 she was killed today on Father's Day, and they decided. That, that this was a good time to implement this decision, if, if they have any sensitivity at all towards victims, um, when you come in within weeks to the anniversary dates of the murder and abduction of their, of their children, it would be April for the, for the Frenches. they're in turmoil. And I'm not saying that the people at Corrections did this on purpose, but what I am saying is they didn't even give it any thought. They weren't even thinking about it, yet they play lip service to victims' rights. This yeah. is a horrific uh, timing. It could not have been worse. And I quite find, and it's just completely un- unacceptable.
0: Tim, we've heard uh, repeatedly from uh, family members of, uh, of murder victims when they attend parole board hearings that they feel like they're irrelevant, like they're just a nuisance. And their victims' impact statements are said to be too long by the parole board. And if you don't, you don't shorten it. We will. And if you don't edit the content, we will. It's not about the victims. Uh, in in this case, it's really about, about Bernardo. What are they saying? What what's the official? Um, explanation for the move from maximum security to medium security for Bernardo? In other words, what are they trying to get away with?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I find this really, really disturbing because uh, 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 that's the exact question that I asked when I was advised that this transfer had taken place. And they said, we cannot tell you because of Paul Bernardo's privacy privacy (laughs) rights, which just is, is just unacceptable. And I've said it before, and, and Roy, you and I've talked about this. Uh, under the Privacy Act itself, the government is required to do a proportional and principled uh, evaluation of the public interest against the particular privacy interest of the offender in question. But they don't do that. They do it at large. That's why I say it's like a template application of the law. So I want to know exactly, and I st- we still don't have an answer Tell, you define, that is Corrections Canada, you define exactly what the privacy rights Paul Bernardo has left that are so important, so monumental, that it trumps the, uh, the public's right to know. Because the law requires you to do that, and they're not doing it. As far as I'm concerned, they're breaking the law. And and, and the government needs to jump in, and if they feel there is a lacuna or a loophole in the law, change it. People like this, we don't have capital punishment. That's not a problem for me. But but they but at least he should be experiencing the severest punishment that we can we can met out, and that is life means life in maximum security, full stop, end of story. This person doesn't deserve anything more than that, given the specific, horrific, unspeakable crimes that he committed.
0: What are your and the French or Mahaffey family's concerns about how far Bernardo might move in a step-down direction toward prison gates? You know, a lot of conversation about whether or not he could ever be considered for any kind of day parole. And right now, it's incon- you know, he couldn't consider it. But this this move to the mi- 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 medium-security prison has me concerned because that's the route Carla Homolka uh, took. So uh, what are your concerns in that regard, if you have well, any—
2: Well, I do because I've I've been doing this for forty three years, and I've seen. I hope this is not the reason, but the problem is when they when they when they rely on secrecy and don't tell us the basis for their decisions, uh, it it creates uh, cynicism and, and suspicion. But we do know that it is it is a it is a it is a process that Corrections Canada and case management teams follow all the time is that they cascade the offender through the system from maximum to medium to minimum to enhance their chances. Uh, for parole. I hope that's not what they're doing here, but we need to get to the bottom of this. And we've got to know what the criteria is. My view is, is that when we do get, the, when they do disclose the criteria, it will be, it'll be completely focused on rehabilitation, even though the experts say Bob Bernardo, it, it can never be rehabilitated. He cannot be treated. There is no cure for sadistic sexual psychopathy. I, you won't find an expert in the world to say otherwise. Uh, and and they, they kind of ignore the punishment factor. And, and uh, you know, I go back to the decision of the trial judge, then Associate Chief Justice Lesage who then became our Chief Justice, one of the most experienced and distinguished and, quite frankly, compassionate judges this country's ever seen. And he made it clear that Paul Bernardo to spend the rest of his life in jail, never to see freedom again, in a maximum security institution, that he cannot be treated. And that has not changed. And that was the same record. That was in 1995 when he was declared a dangerous offender. But just two years ago at the parole hearing, the facts had not changed. So what on earth is, is their new criteria? I mean, what, what, what do they think? What are they going to say happened in the last two years that didn't happen in the previous 30 years? Right. You can't treat these guys. No, as I said earlier, no remorse, no empathy, no insight, nothing. They can't be treated. And we're doing this guy a favor, giving him more privileges? Uh, that's not justice.
0: That's just not justice. So I uh, I came across this uh, interesting story. You know, there were, there's a lot of military talk, of course, with uh, Ukraine and Russia, and Ukraine has launched its counteroffensive now against the Russians, and tough slogging ahead, and uh, Western nations, NATO nations, have delivered billions of dollars in arms, sophisticated equipment to Ukraine. Canada has pitched in. Uh, we sent... Um, Leopard tanks, we are sending some more. I don't know how many we have left here at that point. Uh, we, we don't really have a well-stocked military. And we don't have a military that's—well, re- the, the, the men and the women in the military are ready. But they don't have the equipment that they require it, should, the, uh, should we become uh, um, the targets of another um, major nation. Now, why don't we rely on the Americans and uh, the Americans that come and protect us— the Americans will protect their self interests, and we should be well equipped and ready to defend ours. At least to make it a, a make another nation, the Russians, Chinese, whoever it may be, make them think about it. You know, it's like the Swiss. The Swiss—it's uh, like a hornet's nest in, in the Swiss Army and the Swiss Swiss, Swiss Air Force. They're neutral, but uh, all their mountain passes are mined and. They have uh, tremendous gun emplacements, emplacements in the Alps. And somebody uh, once said, yeah, you can get into Switzerland. The big problem you're going to have is getting back out. Uh, well, and now we have the story that uh, NATO is engaged in a massive air um, exercise in Germany with NATO nations participating, more than two dozen. We got a couple hundred aircraft, and guess who's not? Not going to be there. wasn't there now. We're not. And I may be too cynical, but I just don't think we can be there because we don't have the aircraft that are required. We have uh, CF-18s, which were introduced in uh, 1983, I believe, which was the same year that the MiG-29 was introduced. And that's the plane that Ukraine has that they're desperately trying to upgrade from so they can fight the Russians on a more even a level playing playing field, battlefield. There's so much at play here, and it's our way of life, and we have to be able to secure our way of life, which has been the consistent message of Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former Vice Chief of the Defense Staff, former Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. The Admiral joins us. Admiral Norman, uh, happy Father's Day. Thanks for taking the time.
3: Well, uh, thank you, Roy, and to your listeners and all the fathers out there. Thank you for bringing me back on the show.
0: Well, it's always a, an honor to have you with us, because we know we get we get it straight from you. And uh, when I first saw that we're not pers- participating in the NATO air exercise, I thought, well, I wonder why. Because the CF-18s they're they're impressive when nothing else is in the sky with them, but if they're up against fifth generation fighters, then whether it's in exercises or heaven forbid combat, well, I'm um, they're just out. They're out. They're out. They're out class They're outgunned, aren't they?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, as you said in your introduction, I mean, we're looking at a forty-year-old aircraft, and right. uh, I, I think that that's um, not really the the primary uh, driver behind this decision. However, sadly, this is a function of uh, lack of capacity, both in terms of. The actual numbers of aircraft that are uh, operationally available and the people that are necessary to both fly them and maintain them, and that seems to be consistent with the message from the official message from uh, D and the Air Force. My instinct is that uh, they would have liked to have been part of this, um, but that uh, it just wasn't possible. And of course, they're they're referring to the ongoing transition and modernization which really goes back to uh, bringing on board the Australian um, F-18s, the used F-18s that are being used by the government to basically act act as a stopgap until we get the F-35s in the next decade or so.
0: Yeah. Parliamentary Budget Officer told us on this program that when it comes to the F-35 program and the surface ships that Canada is expecting, that we don't have the money for it. We haven't got the money budgeted for it. Yeah, I,
3: I, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. There's certainly ongoing tension between the Parliamentary Budget Office, of course, that's an independent uh, uh, office that reports to Parliament, and uh, the government itself with respect to whether these uh, major uh, procurements have, in fact, uh, got the necessary resources. Um, I, I think, um, you know, certainly that th- this, again, is another recurring problem. Um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, military equipment is expensive. We are um, not necessarily the most efficient purchasers of military equipment in Canada. We tend to have a lot of process. We tend to drag things out much longer than is required, and that all drives up the cost. As your listeners will know, everything is now much more expensive than it was even two or three years ago, and that applies as much to military uh, hardware as it does to anything else. So you can imagine the aggregate effect uh, over a decade or two of delays on the cost of an already very expensive piece of equipment. And I think that that's kind of the problem that the, the PBO is describing, among others.
0: Admiral Norman, I, uh, I have your notes in front of me that you uh, delivered on in March, early March of this year, at the CDAI conference, and you said, um, in part... A much-needed contribution to what is a—this conference is an important and timely platform for the discussion of national defense and security issues. A much-needed contribution to what is a woefully inadequate, arguably non-existent national security culture here in Canada. We've devolved, haven't we? We just—I mean, do we not get it or do we just not want to spend the money?
3: I think it's a combination of things, uh, Roy, and, and unfortunately, you know, th- th- my comments—I I, have—I don't regret them at all. In fact, I stand by them. I think they're even more applicable now, a couple of months later. But I think uh, a number of issues. I think first of all, uh, we are uh, geographically privileged in Canada, um, uh, being part of the North American continent. We have been historically isolated from a lot of the major. Um, security issues uh, around the globe, but that we're, see- we're seeing that that's not that's not true anymore, and that uh, we're increasingly vulnerable. So that's part of it. I think the second thing is that uh, we have consistently relied on um, the benevolence, the generosity of the United States uh, to defend the continent, and therefore we've done the absolute minimum necessary to uh, to you know contribute. And, uh, and the third thing is I, I, I genuinely believe that that uh, there is a sense um, of other priorities, which is important and completely understandable. But uh, the, the notion that um, those other things um, should come at the expense of security and defense, well, that's <laughs> that, that's a bit mis, misguided, in my opinion, because if you don't have security and defense, all the rest of the stuff uh, is potentially uh uh, at risk, but that's the view of a, a retired uh, Military person.
0: Well, all we have to do is look at Ukraine and if we consider Ukraine was a beautiful country before the Russian invasion said much like ours Way of a way of life much like ours that changed with a military invasion and they're now fighting for their lives Desperately fighting for their lives and they're they're fighting I think heroically but, but you pointed out and you just said national security, looking at your notes from that uh, March speech, n- national security is much more complex now. And it goes well beyond the traditional considerations th- that have allowed our leaders to naively rely on our physical isolation from many of the threats of previous decades. Canada, however, is no longer immune to events on other sides, other side of the world. And nor is our way of life guaranteed simply because of our proximity to the United States. We like our way of life. We love our way of life, Admiral, all of us but well, there's a cost and there's, there's a requirement to be ready to defend it if it becomes necessary. And we, and you and I have talked about this on the air. We have, uh, we've become rather lax at that.
3: Well, yeah. And, and certainly, and that, that's why I was raising the, raising the alarm in essence and, mm-hmm. and others are, are trying to do so as well. Um, and I think, you know, for your listeners, it's it important the, a distinction that I try to make and I, cause I think it is really important is, When we look at the events in Ukraine and and the the sheer horror of what's happening, I mean, the country's being destroyed, people are being murdered, um, and this is all in the interest of ideology. And this is where I I think um, the rubber hits the road, to put it crudely. Um, and, And so... I do not believe that Canada is going to be invaded in a traditional sense. I think that there are physical threats to Canada, mostly to do with um, the, our proximity and sitting between Russia and the United States, but that's another discussion. What I'm really concerned about is the underlying um, ideology that is essential to our way of life—the notion of uh, rules based order, the notion of uh, free, uh, free trade, for, you know, economics—all of these things that have have defined our wealth and our um, overall um, health as a nation uh, over over you know the last several decades certainly since the second world war and that's under threat and it's under threat by countries like russia and countries like china who do not see the world order in the way that we have um and our allies have um, for for our adult lives and, and and certainly beyond, and their their goal in all of this is fundamentally is to reset the global order uh, in in their interests uh, in in their vision, and this is what's playing out. And Ukraine is up tangible and and frightening example of the lengths to which uh, these countries are prepared to go to, to basically uh, make things work the way they want them to work
0: Admiral, how do uh, how do our allies view our lack of uh, presence our absence for something like this massive air exercise in Germany
3: yeah I, it's a good question I, I think it's a mixed reaction to depending on who exactly you're talking to. Um, And I I think it's useful, you know, given this week, um, you know, the government's just announced that we're putting a squadron of tanks into Latvia. So we kind of need to put that into the mix. So remember a while ago we talked about the fact that we weren't sending that many leopard tanks into Ukraine. Um, And I guess we now have an indication as to why um, we were holding back because we've now sent, um, Fifteen tanks into Latvia, which is a good thing. It's a good thing for our contribution to the eastern front of NATO and our forces in Latvia. They need that heavier armor as part of uh, their own force protection. But but why do I say that? Because I get it. Really depends who you're talking to. Um, my instinct would be that, or my sense would be that Latvia and other countries like that would be looking at Canada's ongoing contribution and saying that's a really good thing. I think some of the more Substantive allies, and we've got to recognize that everybody's the same in NATO, but some are bigger and stronger than others. Um, some of them would be looking at Canada and, and and probably wondering why, and they'd probably be somewhat disappointed. But I think really that the issue in your question is we are um, becoming increasingly inconsistent, and and I think that that is probably the the underlying concern. We we like. To use politically the argument that one of the reasons why, um, you know, Canada sh- it pushes back on the 2% contribution to NATO um, is because we we make the argument that we're always there, we're always contributing, and therefore... Um, our, our contribution should be viewed slightly differently because it's not just a numbers game with respect to uh, finances. And this was alluded to in that article by uh, John Iveson. So, you know, that's a long way of saying it really depends, but, but the overall trend is probably not good. But if you're in Latvia or you've you're, um, got anything to do with um, ready forces uh, or managing ready forces, on the eastern front of NATO right now, you're probably very happy that Canada's there, Canada's contributing, and that we've just upped our game with a squadron of tanks, because that, that, that will make a difference on the ground there, um, God help us, if, if they are required beyond just uh, being part of a deterrent force.
0: Right. Uh, one of the points we've been making for years is that uh, politics should, should not be engaged in health care, uh, is it fair to say that uh, politics should not be involved, and I mean all party politics, should not be engaged in in, in determining security uh, and and the military capability of this country?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's a really uh, useful uh, comparison because it's useful for a couple of reasons. One, your uh, your listeners can obviously relate uh, in, in in terms of day to day. Uh, challenges to the state of the healthcare system and the fact that um, you know it needs it needs a significant um, boost and 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 it needs help and that throwing money at it isn't necessarily the solution if it's not properly set up and it's not the processes aren't there you know it, it, if it, if it's not working the way it should throwing more money at it isn't going to make it better although that's part of the problem but we need to fix it before we start spending more money on it. If you follow my thought process. And that's a very, very similar thought process. I think the other thing that's useful in that comparison is that um, when, when we politicize issues like that, um, we we become distracted by the politics of the issue and we lose track of what is actually uh, at stake and why it is an important issue. So you know, I, I have made public statements to the effect that the politicization of defense and security is unhealthy, and I, I genuinely believe that. Um, I, I believe that, you know, there are there are certain things which are so foundational to who we are um, and, and, and what's important to us and what's in our national interest that they shouldn't be politicized. Um, but unfortunately, they are. Um, and I'm not sure how we as Canadians get ourselves... Uh, to a point where we, we hold our politicians to, to account and uh, we, we make them um, behave in a more responsible way okay. when it comes to these really important issues.
0: This Bernardo stuff is not new. Now, neither is our Beauties and the Beast segment, but it's been a while since we've had one. Because I took an unexpected, unscheduled leave of absence and... Uh, i was so looking forward to uh, having Catherine Swift back with us, president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada, the former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Linda Leatherdale, vice president of Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Party MP and seatmate to Justin Trudeau. I'll have to say that in Canada's parliament. Uh, Also a member of the Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics Parliamentary Committee. That must have been fun. Um,
4: uh, yes, it was.
0: Yeah. And
4: I actually, what was interesting about it is I served on that committee with Pierre Polyev. Oh, did you know? Yes. He wow. was on the committee as well.
0: Well, we'll have to talk about that one day. Yeah.
4: <laughs> it was how, interesting.
0: How are you, Michelle?
4: I'm just fine. And more importantly, I'm so glad that you're fine.
0: Okay. Well, I'm not fine, but, uh, better. I'm certainly better. Yeah. I'm it's the, the illness is being managed. And it's being managed effectively. I have, uh, I'm, I'm, medical professionals taking great care of me, so I'm very lucky. Great. yeah. Linda,
5: Roy, right. oh girl. my, it's just so nice to be back on with you. And I echo what Michelle says. You know, you were sorely missed, and it's so great that, to have you back.
0: And I thank you for all the personal support that came from you throughout. Thank you. <laughs>
5: and. You supported my baby girl through her episode, so thank you, Roy, and we're all behind you. The beauties are behind you 100%. Nice.
0: I got all sorts of emails from Catherine. How are you doing? How's it going? How, can I come over and help you out? Um, thank, Catherine, it really meant a great deal to me. Thank you. You've been a great friend for many years, and uh, I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm glad I'm back, and, and and we're all together, the beauties and the beast. How could we separate this thing? <laughs>
6: Well, we could all sing kumbaya if you like, Roy, but I'm just sure, the beast is back. Sure, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. I'll join in for the second
6: chorus. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the idea here was, <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. Um, the idea here was that I would ask the three of you, and, and not ask for any input uh, for me, what issues— are first and foremost on your mind. So let's go in that order we started. Michelle, let's start with you. What's what's first and foremost on your mind about the issues circulating, percolating in this country?
4: Uh, Well, I'd have to say it's probably the same for probably all of us. This latest fiasco uh, with the uh, Paul Bernardo affair, it was really disturbing, uh, not just on its face, but the fact that it was poorly managed and poorly messaged. Uh, I understand that Marco Mendicino, at a separation of the government from Corrections Canada, but the fact that the boys in the short pants, I call them in his office, or ladies in their short skirts, uh, absolutely kept, maybe kept him in the dark, but we don't know for sure, because he's pressed the uh, um, the limits on credibility during the um, uh, February crisis a year and a half ago. So, you know, I I just think that this government has run out of steam. And that's the part that really concerns me, that they just, with the support of the NDP, have become so arrogant and lazy. uh, We're all paying a price.
0: Yes, we are. And they'll want to know how the steam was created. When you said they ran out of steam.
4: Well, I I think the fact that, I think they're just sailing along because they've got uh, Jagmeet Singh's support.
0: That's right. That's right, they do. Until
4: 2025. So it's like they're on an extended holiday that they figure, well, no matter what happens, we can't be brought down.
0: Okay. So Bernardo for you. Linda, what's the issue for you?
5: Wow. Well, thanks, Michelle, for hitting Bernardo. That definitely is. But I just looked at a whole bunch of the scandals under Justin Trudeau. And I can't believe, Roy, seven years in power and scandal after scandal. I'm just going to name a couple of them. You know, Blackface scandal, the We Charity, uh, the trucker convoy, that's a huge one, and $6,000 a night for hotel rooms. Um, The vacation scandal, the ethics commissioner, come on, Justin and his gang have Broken. Our conflict of interest rules, laws, so many times my head is spinning. And then now we've got, as you know, we have your back during COVID and sending out CERB checks and everybody was in the money. And then all of a sudden now with high inflation, families are just up to their eyeballs and debt can't afford to put food on the table. He sent his CRA pit bulls, debt collectors after low income Canadians. I mean, I've had enough. And let's not forget the budget. We can talk about that after. But we are in a fiscal problem. 1.1 trillion in debt. Consumers 2.3 trillion in debt. Higher interest rates. They're living in la la land. They regulated marijuana. They all must be smoking it because they don't get the reality check. So I'm with Michelle. Come on, sing. Get rid of this rotten deal and let us go to the polls. We need it
0: now. On no, no, July the 1st, the Clean Fuel Standards Act, or whatever it is, <laughs> is, going is going to raise the, uh, the price of gasoline and fuel in many provinces by 14 cents a liter at one shot. Catherine, uh, and what's on your
1: mind?
6: Well, all of the things my beauty colleagues have mentioned, of course. But, you know, it's hard to pick one, Roy, because I, and I, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Canada's broken. I believe it is. I believe it fundamentally is in so many ways. And yeah, like I I love, I love the talk in, in, um, in uh, Johnston's report about Blair not knowing the password to the super duper top secret confidential, uh, you know, email account. Are you kidding? And the Bernardo stuff. The staff, Mendocino's staff, knew for three months and didn't tell him. Give me a break. I've worked in Ottawa. This is BS of the first order. And we, we always. A lot of people are saying, well, they're either lying or they're incompetent. Well, I would say actually they're both. And and it's it's disgusting. I can't I can't believe uh, Canadians are still supporting them. Frankly, because all the screw ups are so visible and 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 high profile. And we've got criminals with records as long as both of your arms right now, killing people out in, uh, killing innocent people and, and, and uh, assaulting them and so on uh, when they are out on bail inexplicably. Our justice system is in the tank. Our economy is also in a shambles right now. Government growing way more than the private sector. That's a recipe for disaster. Companies are leaving Canada. Investments leaving Canada. We're heavily indebted, as Linda said. And uh, I, I remember Trudeau saying, "Oh, it's good that we spend because interest rates are so low." Ha ha ha! Not so much now, and we're paying gobs of money just to service our debt right now. Cost of living skyrocketing. Canadians are again in debt, as Linda said. And Trudeau's going to impose that second carbon tax, the clean so-called clean fuel standard. With you've got a company like Irving threatening to leave Canada. Which, by the way, that would be huge if that were to happen and mm-hmm. destroy the labor market in New Brunswick. So, it, it, Roy, it's hard to know. This country's a mess, and I'm sorry, but a lot of it can be laid at the feet of the current liberal government.
0: I see there was some whining on Twitter that, that you're the beauties and somehow I'm being disrespectful to you. I would suggest to the people who are saying that I we should drop that, don't tell me, tell them. Good luck. So, uh, right, Is, you're not backing out on me now, are you? No. <laughs> no. No.
6: <laughs> you are. The yeah, baby. I saw. I saw that, Roy. Yeah, I saw know, that. I saw you respond to that, that too. Give me a break. I answered the guy. I said, "I'm 70 battle. years old. Anybody wants to call me a beauty, I go let her rip." Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
5: Okay. I just to hear <laughs> and I concur. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's get back to the issues that that matter to you and I'm sure by extension matter to so many people listening to this program across this country of ours. So we you know we, we we've covered a number of them uh, where do we, where do you want to go from here? Anybody.
5: How about secrecy?
0: Okay.
6: Well, and, well, and how, how about it was supposed to be the most transparent government ever? Yeah. I've concluded that whatever anybody in this liberal government says What they do will be 180 degrees opposite to what they say they're going to do. And whether this is a transparency issue or so many others, they're going to balance the budget. Yeah, right. Uh, We've got the worst deficit ever. And and our kids and grandkids are going to have to, you know, deal with that down the road. I, I frankly just one of the most recent hilarious in a sick way, they're putting individual warning on cigarettes. And yet many cities are looking at making heroin, cocaine and methadone legal. Uh, for personal use. I, I mean, come on! I, this this is nutty. This is nutty stuff. <laughs>
0: By the way, a majority of Canadians do not support the idea, or actually support mandatory intervention for chronic drug addicts. Same poll. Michelle, you're 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 a former Liberal MP. Party's being attacked. Well, it's not your party anymore. Well, it wasn't the
4: party that. I grew up with, put it that way. No, I'm sure. And actually, I I agree with Catherine when she said we're broken. I've never felt so despondent about the future in Canada, the unaffordability, particularly here in Ontario, Mm -hmm. and what our children are facing and my grandchildren will be facing. And there just seems to be no end to it. Nobody's nobody's accountable.
0: You know what's interesting, what you just said? What I hear from people quite regularly is, I'm not worried about me. I'm at a certain age. I'm not going to be here forever. But I'm worried about... My kids or my grandkids, I'm worried about the five and six-year-olds and the four-year-olds and the newborns in this country. I hear that all over and over and over. That speaks to a lack of confidence, not only in the stewardship of today, but what that stewardship of today is going to mean to the years to come.
6: Exactly. It's worrisome. Well, when you've got groups like the OECD, which are hardly uh, right-leaning groups, saying that Canada has the least potential growth in our economy of all of the OECD countries, not just for the next couple of years, but for the next 30 years. Uh, You've got to know we've got some serious problems. We have productivity issues. We have, uh, you know, demographic issues. There's just so many. and, And of course, debt issues, both government debt and personally and so on. And a government that loves to spend our money, but uh, doesn't know how to generate wealth. And if we're not generating wealth, then we we don't have money to spend. I was glad you had Mark Norman on, Roy. He's such an admirable, (laughs) admirable, admiral, I guess, uh, guy, uh, because that was one of our first indications of Trudeau's lack of character. He accused him wrongly, and that was very early in their term. Uh, And then of course, because the courts could find nothing to defend the accusations, he, he got some kind of big, fat settlement, which, frankly, he deserved to get. But guess who paid for it? We did. Maybe Trudeau should have paid personally for that, so he'd actually have some personal ramifications for his incredibly bad judgment.
0: I have a listener from British Columbia who texted to us at 877-399-9898, just one line. What an exemplary Canadian Admiral Norman is. Bang on. Yeah. Bang yeah,
6: on. 100%. Well, I've met the man, my coalition. We honored him at one of our uh, gala dinners a few years ago. And he's a quality guy and his wife's a lovely lady, too. So I, I, I remember meeting them and, and really being impressed. Okay. And for his notable, you know, career to be shot down by such an incompetent politician is a disgrace.
0: Because he brought in a supply ship that the Canadian yeah, Navy well, required well, I, and I brought it in on time him. and under budget.
6: Yeah, I, I actually introduced him at this event, and I said, when I first heard about this, you know, I I, I wondered what the issue was all about. And then I realized that Admiral Norman brought in a, pro, a Canadian military procurement project on time and under budget, yep. and that in Canada is just not allowed.
0: <laughs> Linda, we have 30 seconds. You want to take a run?
5: Well, just, you know, Catherine hit it. I mean, they're spending like drunken sailors, the last budget. No, I resent that. I've been a drunken
0: sailor, and I spent quite more judiciously than the government. (laughs) (laughs)
5: $491 billion in new spending. But I mentioned secrecy. Come on, this whole debacle about China interference, and then David Johnston finally stepped back. Canadians deserve to know we don't live in a shroud of secrecy. We pay high, high taxes. We have every right to know what's going on in our government. So I, I, I just, again, it's time, sing, to break up that deal and let us speak up. Okay. We are the people who pay for this country.
0: Missed you. 100%. Missed you. You finish it, okay? What was the program after? Missed you? Missed you. Come on. It starts with the word letter G. Oh, come on.
5: Uh-oh. Is this rock and roll?
0: No, no. <laughs> I've always had fun with you guys. Oh, right? you
5: guys. oh, uh, you guys.
0: He didn't want to say the word. <laughs> on, I didn't want to say the word. I was too scared.
5: Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we like it. Well, I yeah, know you do. we do. I know you
0: do. Okay, well, we'll yeah. talk again very soon. Thanks for the time today. Thank and
5: you. happy Father's Day to everybody. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: I want to do this story with you now. There's a national poll showing Canadians in each demographic category, and by a clear majority are saying that Canada's justice system, this is all tied together, is too generous with bail and too lenient with violent criminals. No kidding. The poll was done uh, for the National Post by Léger Marketing. Uh, Canadians by strong majority also support mandatory treatment for chronic drug addicts, and that runs against what the policymakers uh, generally suggest. Andrew Enns is Executive Vice President at Léger Marketing. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Andrew, thank you very much. How are you?
1: I'm I'm doing well, Roy, and I appreciate uh, being on your program.
0: Yeah, good to talk to you. So we have, uh, as I look at the results of the poll, we have the policymakers and the people who make the decisions in Parliament on a collision course. With public opinion and a very significant collision of course, because you have up to eighty percent of Canadians in all de- demographics saying the same thing: we don't, we don't like it. We want to change. Give us the fundamentals on the issue of, of bail. What concerns Canadians, and as well what concerns Canadians as far as the treatment and the release system for violent offenders is concerned.
1: <clears throat> well. For sure, uh, Roy, and I think I'll, I'll just go back. Uh, you know, one step. Uh, we we did a poll back in April at Leger that just asked how people, how Canadians are feeling about sort of violent crime and and the incidents of crime in their community, and and we found over sixty percent saying things were getting worse. So in this poll that uh, that we want to talk about now, we actually went in and looked at sort of well, w- what are some of the things that that governments uh, are doing to make things better and, and how do Canadians feel about that. And as you noted in your introduction, um, there is a bit of a disconnect in the sense that some of the things that we hear a lot about in terms of measures that that are uh, going to help things, quite frankly, are running counter to how Canadians feel about um, what they think is necessary. And if you take the drug situation, which Canadians uh, in our, in our Leger poll said is a, is a, is a serious issue, uh, in their, uh, you know, in their community, 72% said it was a serious issue. Um, you know, their remedies for what they wanted to see done is certainly a lot more of, of finding those that are, that are selling, uh, you know, trafficking drugs in their community, uh, more aggressive policing, um, to your point, um, you know, in Alberta, I think they're trying this, uh, roy where they're where they're looking at involuntary treatment programs, which many people don't agree with, but have to say the public is is uh, is seems to be in aligned with and not just in Alberta, but but really across the country with respect to wanting to uh, to uh, you know uh, really see some aggressive action in terms of. yeah, change.
0: and Andrew, though though that points out to me is that people are paying attention. To the decisions that are made in provincial and federal legislatures, and they're, they're challenging it. You, your poll shows that, and look, uh, you've got 79% of the Canadians who surveyed on violent offenders saying there are too many repeat violent offenders being offered bail, 79%. 78% agreed with this statement, the justice system is too lenient on offenders who are found to be guilty of committing a violent crime. It's, I've said this, it's almost become a joke, but it's not. You it, it would have difficulty convincing 79 or 78% of Canadians to agree that today is Sunday. So when they're they're, they're in agreement on these two salient pieces of concern with the justice system, that speaks volumes, doesn't it?
1: Well, it does. And and, and I think, look, you know, it's a problem for for policymakers because um, people are starting to, when you see these sorts of numbers, I, I read into these numbers that there's a lot of frustration, that there just seems to be, a repeat of stories, or you know, they they go down streets. They see large encampments. They see people, uh, um, you know, just milling around. They there's a horrific incidents of violent uh, violent crime that that are later on we learn that it's, they're being perpetrated by an individual who's who's uh, on probation or on bail, and it's over and over. And I think you, you, there's a frustration, and I think the concern. I think if you were a policymaker is. Does this lead to a lack of faith in the system? Because that—that that is not a place where I don't—I think policymakers want to end up, uh, you know, uh, in the future.
0: No. Um, again, you've got seventy-nine percent saying that uh, bail is too easy. Too many repeat of violent offenders are being offered bail, and seventy-eight percent saying the justice system is too lenient on offenders who are found to be guilty of committing a violent crime. We have just, in the last couple of weeks here, has been speaking to people I've known for years whose families have been subjected to to murder. They're, in one case, five-year-old child. In another case, the, the, the parents of uh, former Team Canada and NHL goaltender Don Edwards. And, uh, you know, these the, the, the violent criminals have just have been released. Yeah, they've done time, but should they be out, the majority of Canadians would likely say no. Um what, what what did you hear about strengthening the bail provision?
1: Well, it's interesting. Again, like we see with with the you know their approach to sort of dealing with people addicted to illegal drugs, and uh, you know people are prepared to push, you know, push the envelope. We found uh, we we asked uh, you know a question, um, you know, do you agree or disagree with the statement? I'm in favor of restricting bail, even if it could potentially lead to challenges on the interpretation of our charter of rights. Seventy three percent agreed with that. So again, you see, you see people's frustration and desire for something different that even push beyond what, you know, they, they appreciate there's going to be people who will say, no, we can't do that. It's it's, it's not part of our, you know, it's not fair. And I think people are, are getting a bit fed up uh, with that sort of mentality and are prepared to go um, to push things, to push things further and, you know I, know, I know our premiers are pushing hard for some uh, for some bail reform and, and uh, you know, I've shared this poll with a few of them. And, and I think, uh, you know, but, but they, uh, you know, hopefully they feel emboldened in terms of their push and and hopefully things change because the uh, public, public expects it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the National Post story here that you, you did the poll for Post Media. Um, sentiments around incarceration and detention have noticeably hardened. Following recent incidents of murders and assaults, being committed by suspects who were either on bail or had recently obtained early release from prison. This included the random fatal stabbing of a mother and a child outside an Edmonton elementary school in broad daylight on the 5th of May. A 33-year-old assailant was later shot by police. And uh, Canada was particularly galvanized by the December twenty seven fatal shooting of an Ontario provincial police constable by a repeat violent offender who was on bail at the time. That police officer was trying to help him. Car was in the ditch, and the cop stopped, young man, stopped to, to, to try to help, and he gets shot and killed for his efforts. People are not willing to accept this. Is, uh, so, what's the, what really is the message? What's the takeaway message that everybody has to get from this poll, Andrew?
1: Well. Uh... I think the takeaway is that people are are losing, you know, are losing faith in, in a system that just doesn't seem to to acknowledge that that what's happening to, in what you just described, what's yeah. happening, is just unacceptable. And I think there's, a, I, I really do feel that there is a um, that the that you know, if you're in government, um, I think you can't just allow the status quo to continue. I think you really have to. You know, look at you know, look at some things that are going to, you know, demonstrate in in actual actions uh, to the, to the public that things are changing. You know, you I, I listened to uh, you know a few uh, few minutes before I jumped on, and, and you had uh, you know talking about the Bernardo thing. We Tim were when when this occurred. It's 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 different, but it's really not, Roy. It's the same symptom of of a system that seems to be oblivious yeah. to. Yeah. The feeling, the sentiments, and this isn't like anybody could have told you this was going to be the reaction. And so now, well, I could take you
0: back to Clifford Olson, and we'll do that later on this afternoon uh, or this morning, depending where you are in Canada. We'll be speaking with John Nunziata, who's a former member of Parliament and a criminal lawyer, and he was in my studio in '96 uh, or '97. Olson had written serial murderer of Canadian children had written a letter to John, dropping f bombs everywhere. Because John had, Nunziata had been challenging Olson's right to a parole hearing. Um, and, and Olson hated me too. He got into a, an international poly, a poetry contest. And I got the organizer of the poetry contest on the air, Andrew. And I said, So this guy's your semifinalist? Oh, yeah. He said, He's very good poetry. I said, Do you know anything about him? No. He's a m- convicted serial killer of children in Canada. Question then becomes, How does this guy get to communicating that way from prison? And eventually, the prison system said, oh, yeah, we shouldn't do this. And so they stopped it. And a judge declared Olson a vexatious litigant because he had been threatening to sue the parents of his victims telling one family, you said, I raped and murdered your son. I only murdered him. I wasn't convicted of raping him. So the, the, the lawyer, the parents told me the lawyer told the family, put your house in your daughter's name because if Olson wins the lawsuit, he'll get your house.
1: Yeah. It's 30 years ago. Yeah. And I guess, Roy, it goes all back to what you said earlier, you know, we may all not be rally, you know, we may not be picketing in the streets. We may not be protesting out in front of law courts, but people are paying attention. It shows up in our poll. And at what point does, um, you know, where does it all lead to if nothing changes? I guess I, I yeah. don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But I think the point is that uh, these sorts of numbers, uh, you don't see quite, you don't get, typically see in Canadian public opinion on many issues. No. Um, but uh, But we're seeing it on this. Uh, and pretty consistently. And I think that's, um, you know, that's that's a big takeaway.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.